Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Oh, they freed Britney. Britney's freed. I think we can all celebrate that. I think we can, yeah. Good for her. One day we're going to do a Crossroads episode. I can't in good conscience defend that movie, but I think it needs to be discussed. Uh, Dan Aykroyd plays her dad for some reason, which is crazy. I mean, who else would play her dad? Let's be honest. That's true. That's true. I think we should do a Crossroads from Justin to Kelly double feature, because I have a lot <laughs> of feelings. Do we want people to stop listening? What? <laughs> no, I think... Okay, A, have you ever seen from Justin to Kelly? Have you ever watched it with us? No. I've made Tip watch it with me like three times. It... <laughs> it, it, was, it was a very particular moment in cinematic history um kind of akin to the 1699 cd moment where they really felt like they could just take tv people and put them in anything and kids would go to the movies and i what was that one review that describes it as grease as performed by the food court crew at SeaWorld or something (laughs) great movie hi tony oh tony's coming in to tear up the carpet thanks tony not getting that security deposit back are you mad? Okay, there's going to be the sound That's of Tony. always mad about something. He's literally, I, honestly, he Tony, I always say this, but it's like, people get cats because they think they're low maintenance, and Tony's the kind of cat that you get, and then you realize it's like you've effectively just gotten a dog. He requires just as much effort as a dog. Well, my cat, he's like halfway between, like he's low maintenance in most other regards, but when it comes to like taking him to the vet, most high maintenance creature we got him a new carrier, one of those ones that opens at the top so you can just, you know, gently drop the cat in. Oh my god, it was like he had four, all four legs, like, on the edge of the carrier. I was, like, trying to get him in, like... <laughs> oh my god. And then you had to drop him off at the doorstep, like a foundling. Yeah, I had to drop him off at the doorstep and, like, call the vet so they could take him in. And then the vet who took him in was like, jeez, he's heavy, how much is he, 10 kilos? I'm like, let's not shame my cat. And then he was just sitting in the reception for seemingly half an hour before he got seen, which made me feel very bad because it's like he's going to think we've abandoned him, which I'd never do. But I think it'd be funny if you were dropping him off at the doorstep and then like somebody came running out and it was like Ginger Rogers and Bundle of Joy. And they're (laughs) like, you can't abandon your cat. You're like, I'm not abandoning my cat. It's the vet's office. (laughs) (laughs) In front of a big sign. This is I don't know who would be coming up to you, but I feel something would be a funny visual. Like I'm abandoning my overweight cat. I can't handle him anymore. He's eating me out of house and home. When I did drop him off at the at the doorstep, there was a couple with their dog there, and Gull was howling so much. He always howls whenever we put him in the carrier, and it freaked out the dog because he was meowing so loudly. <laughs> anyway, that ordeal is over for another three months. He still hasn't lost enough weight. He's so fat. Why is he so fat? You have to send him to fat camp like it's the 90s. <laughs> Glad that's not a thing anymore. 
I mean, I'm sure it's a thing somewhere, but... I don't know. The the whole concept of camp, it's not really the same kind of culture you, because camp is like something you do with school. So you, you like go with your school for like two weeks or whatever to some camp up in the high country and it's all run by the school. So your teachers are there, all your classmates are there. And it's not, like, themed or anything. It's just, like, you know, you go on a flying fox, you go kayaking, and then, you know, you get really cold and eat terrible food and come home. So, yeah, not, like, themed camps, like space camp, like the one that Joaquin Phoenix went to (laughs) or anything like that. (laughs) Camp in the United States, I think, is, like, a relic of um, the, you know, two-car garage, stay-at-home wife, 2.4 2.4 kids nuclear family era. I think now I'm speaking very broadly, but I feel like camp kind of falls into two camps. There's like rich girl horse camp, and then there's like YMCA kind of like a camp, like a nonprofit kind of thing, like bringing kids out into the wilderness from the city kind of thing. I don't think there's like middle class kid going to a camp with like a racist, like fake Indian name, you know, and then like getting stabbed. <laughs> You didn't mean like in a horror movie. I don't think it's a thing anymore. That the Lindsay Lohan remake of The Parent Trap, (laughs) that kind of camp, not real? Well, I think it is real, but but she was supposed to be a rich kid from Napa Valley, so they go to camp. I guess. Not the rest of us schmucks. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. I never went to camp. Um, Didn't, would not have enjoyed it. Um, I've only been camping about three times. It was terrible. I'm not about like being in nature for extended time with people I hate. (laughs) <laughs> is kind of the thing. Uh, I can do nature in small amounts, but it's the being trapped with people I hate that I just can't abide. <laughs> That's the thing. And also, like, the thing about camping is that it's like, okay, if I were to go out and bust my knee and fall to my death or get eaten by a bear or whatever, it's like, w- would these be the people I would want to spend my last 48 hours with? And most of the time the answer is no. Also, I don't like shitting in a hole. I, I you know, or call me like bougie. Of the movie Raw, and <laughs> you get your head bitten by a lion, like Jean de Bont. Um, how <laughs> far are you from a hospital in case you get gangrene? You know, like, I've had I've had enough I've had enough wilderness encounters. I think for my lifetime, I don't understand people who do <laughs> it recreationally. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Well, I guess speaking of the wilderness. Speaking of a. a a hunting lodge and a uh, fishing lodge in Maine, scenic. Speaking of isolation with people you don't like, uh, let's talk about today's movie. <laughs> Is anything wrong, Richard? You're so strange. You've been avoiding me. Going off by yourself. Where do you go? What do you think about? Whatever it is, can't you share it with me? We haven't done that for a long time, shared things. Ever since Danny... You've never forgiven me for that, have you? You've always blamed me. You did tell me not to let him swim the lake unless you were with us, but... But we wanted to surprise you. Danny was so happy planning to surprise you. He'd been doing so well. He swam three quarters the day before, and he was sure he could make it. The water was so warm. I thought there was no danger. I must have looked away for a moment, and then when I looked back, Danny was sinking. 
I pulled at the oars and then lost one. And then I grew panicky. It was like a nightmare. Um, okay, well, hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. I am Amelia, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Candace. Hello. And Tiff. Hello. It is that time of year again. It's November, and that can only mean one thing. It's Tierney time, because it's the third year in the row that we're going to be covering a film with Gene Tierney in it. So, I mean, we're right to do so. I think we've got the market cornered on that one, because she deserves it. Let's be real. And not only is this a Gene Tierney movie, but it's a, it's a Gene Squared movie because we've also it got is. Gene Crane. So. Yeah, we've got Gene Crane in there. <laughs> and Cornell Wilde, who kind of looks like his name should be Gene. Well, it's Gene in that old face makeup he has when they're like pretending he's the dad in that picture. Anyway, well, today's movie is the 1945 film Leave Her to Heaven, um, which is exciting. Been thinking about doing this one for a long time because it is such a, I guess, unique piece of noir cinema and also just because it's a completely stunning and incredible movie um so on march 7 1889 in i think it's macon mississippi ben ames williams was born he was the son of daniel webster williams owner and editor of the jackson standard journal of jackson ohio where the family moved after ben was born and sarah marshall ames so williams grew up around the printed word Um, around the printing press and inks and all kinds of writing. And when he was in high school, he took up a job at the journal doing grunt work before working his way up to be a writer and editor. From there, he would go to Dartmouth and graduate in 1910 and be offered a job teaching at a boys' school in Connecticut. When he received the job offer, Williams telegraphed his father asking for his advice on whether he should take the job. However, the telegrapher mistook Williams' terrible handwriting to say traveling instead of teaching, and Williams' father, not wanting his son to become a traveling businessman, advised against taking the job. (laughs) So in this uh, simple twist of fate or consequence of poor handwriting, saw Williams taking a job at the Boston American, saving him from a lifetime of grading subpar English assignments, and put him on the path to become a quite recognizable storyteller of his era. Uh, So Williams worked at the paper primarily for his income, but on his time off, he wrote fiction and would work towards a future where he could support himself solely on his writing, along with his wife and his children. His first published works were in a handful of magazines and newspapers, but he really got his big break when his story, The Mate of Susie Oaks, was published in the Saturday Evening Post. The Saturday Evening Post put him amongst other authors he admired and certainly bolstered his steadily growing readership. He would continue making waves at the Saturday Evening Post with his story titled Coconut, which included a notorious mathematical puzzle called The Monkey and the Coconuts. This problem, it caused quite a stir. Um, So I'll just read out what the problem was and then we can go from there. So five men and a monkey were shipwrecked on an island. Ray or Mojo. They spent the first day gathering coconuts. During the night, one man woke up and decided to take his share of coconuts. He divided them into five piles. One coconut was left over, so he gave it to the monkey, then hid his share, put the rest back together, and went back to sleep. Soon, a second man woke up and did the same thing. After dividing the coconuts into five piles, one coconut was left 
over and he gave it to the monkey. He then hid his share, put the rest back together and went back to bed. The third, fourth and fifth man followed exactly the same procedure. The next morning after they all woke up, they divided the remaining coconuts into five equal shares. This time, no coconuts were left over. How many coconuts were left in the original pile? So Williams had not included the solution to the puzzle in his story, which led to over 2,000 letters being sent into the paper demanding the solution. The Post editor, Horace Lorimer, sent a telegram to Williams saying, For the love of Mike, how many coconuts? Hell popping around here. Which, I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) What does the hell popping around here mean? That's a phrase. Like, hell's a poppin'. The movie. This is a scary time. Um, Williams will continue receiving letters for the next 20 years, demanding solutions or proposals for new solutions. For those interested, the solution is 3,121 coconuts. Don't ask me how you work out that solution. Um, I am absolutely the last person to ask anything mathematical of. So I just looked at the page and he told me. I can't wait to eat that monkey. So I googled Hell's a Poppin' um, just because I was I was curious. And according to a man named Dr. Goodward from Alpha Dictionary, which I'm sure is his real name, um, the phrase Hell's a Popping meant events are evolving in a chaotic manner. So it's like hell, right. the hell's broken loose, but it's Hell's a Poppin'. I kind of like Hell's a Poppin' better. Um, but Williams would go on to be quite prolific in his writing, all coconuts aside. Um, and he would write novels, short stories, articles, and serials for a variety of publishers, papers, and journals. However, it would be his 1944 novel, Lever to Heaven, that brings us to today's story. I will just say an interesting fact about Ben Ames Williams, because we're not going to talk about him again, um, was that when he, he died on February 4, 1953, suffering a heart attack while participating in a curling contest uh, at the Brookline Country Club. That's very Canadian. How much effort are you exerting? They do a lot of yelling. Curling they yell a lot. I guess. I do. They get quite worked up, don't they? Very red in the face, yeah. <laughs> but the way this podcast is tracking, I was expecting you to say he had a heart attack during an orgy or some sort of act of sexual misconduct. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, there's no orgies in this today's episode, so sorry to... Bomb, we're turning it off now. Our fans who have come to expect that by now, but I do have some other crazy stories for you later. So his novel, Lever to Heaven, uh, obviously is what we're talking about today, but more importantly, we're talking about the adaptation. The movie tells the story of a woman named Ellen, and a man named Richard and sort of the sinister happenings that befall their relationship. So at the beginning of this movie, we see that Cornell Wilde, who is Richard, is coming back from being in prison, uh, and he meets his friend and his lawyer, Glenn Roby, who is Ray Collins, who, I don't know, greets him like an old friend and, you know, sends him back on his way to his little cabin on the lake. Then the lawyer sits down with his friend and proceeds to tell the story of what exactly happened, why uh, Richard went to jail. So from the very beginning, we have uh, an unreliable narrator who is basically framing this story, and it's the same frame that's in the novel. So it opens with Richard meeting the beautiful and mysterious Ellen on a train bound for New Mexico. Ellen is reading Richard's book, 
um, but falls asleep reading it. She doesn't seem all that interested, and to be fair, it seems like it would be a boring novel anyway. But she drops the book on the floor, and then Richard picks it up, and they have a conversation. Ellen comments on the fact that Richard looks like her late father, although she doesn't reveal that he's dead at this moment. Then Cornell Wilde proceeds to try and pick her up by reciting lines from his own novel, which is pretty lame. While I was watching you, exotic words drifted across the mirror of my mind as summer clouds drift across the sky. Mm-hmm. Couldn't you be a bit more specific? I'll try. Watching you, I thought of tales in the Arabian Nights, of myrrh and frankincense and... And patchouli? Patchouli, that's it. Wait a minute. I knew it. Here it is. I quote, As he watched her exotic words drifted across the mirror of his mind, he thought of tales in the Arabian Nights, of myrrh and frankincense and patchouli. Unquote. So that's where it came from. Oh, I guess so, but really I wasn't... I give you my word, it's weeks since I read the thing. It must have impressed you enormously. The book? Not particularly. Rather a sloppy job, I thought. I agree with you. You do? Um, and Ellen calls him out on that and sort of just leaves. She's like, this book sucks. Bye. Once they arrive at the train station, they all discover that they're going to the same location. Ellen is there with her mother and her adopted sister, Ruth, who is Jean Crane. And they're all going up to... The Rancho Jacinto, I think it's called. And it's when they arrive at the uh, at the ranch that we kind of see the beginnings of Ellen's isolation in the context of her greater family and friends. So everyone is excited to see her mother and her sister and Cornell Wilde, as, I mean, everyone goes wild for Cornell Wilde, but she is kind of pushed off to the side. Then they all have dinner together and Ellen once again impresses the fact that Richard looks a lot like her dead father. It's too bad Mr. Barron didn't come along this time. I've been told I resemble him. Who told you that, Mr. Harland? I did. Louise, don't you think so? Well, yes, now that you mention it. Glenn? Well, in a way. In every way. I noticed it the minute I saw him in the club car. His face, his voice, his manner, it's uncanny. Well, I must admit you've aroused my curiosity if I should get an opportunity to meet your father. That's hardly likely, Mr. Harland. My husband... We've come here for my father's funeral. Uh, The next day, Ellen scatters the ashes of her father on horseback in the wilds of New Mexico. Ellen, at this point, is sort of... She comes across as quite an atypical character, an intriguing character in that she does a whole lot of different things. She rides horses, she manages business, she plays sports, she swims, uh, she has a very competitive edge, which makes her quite different to perhaps other femme fatales in noir. She also dumps most of those ashes on herself. On the horse. (laughs) Yeah, herself and the horse. Tim Samuel watching Dad is Laundry now. It's kind of like... The, the movement she's doing when she's got this urn is like, you know the fembots in Austin Powers <laughs> when they're shooting with their bazookas? Oh, it's yeah. It's like that. It's totally like that. It's like, yeah, she's moving just the top, like, her shoulders to, like, spread these ashes. 
It doesn't seem like the most efficient way to do it. It's like the end of The Big Lebowski, but she's doing it to herself. <laughs> um, it is it is quite an odd, odd way to do it. But the scenery around it is very beautiful. It's kind of from here that the pair, uh, being Ellen and Richard, begin a romance of sorts while both staying at this resort and are only interrupted when Ellen's ex-fiancé Russell Quinton, uh, who's Vincent Price, uh, arrives. Ellen takes this opportunity to get what she wants and just announces to everyone that she and Richard are engaged to the surprise of everyone, but especially Richard. But he, like, goes with it because I guess if if someone like Jean Tierney proposes to you, what are you going to do? Say no? So the pair marry and they move to Richard's Lodge, which is situated on a lake in northern Maine. Uh, life is domestic bliss at first until Ellen begins displaying some jealousy uh, and it then manifests itself to an almost pathological degree uh, as the film progresses. Um, so she has this kind of animosity towards anyone or anything that Richard cares about or shows interest in. And then this is kind of further exacerbated when, well, Richard brings his younger brother, Danny, who is afflicted with polio to live with them at the lodge. Ellen is kind of weird. She has this kind of two dual personality thing going on where she's, you know, very loving and compassionate and caring towards uh everybody but then she will turn quite brutally well i mean i've always gotten the impression while watching it that that's an act you know yeah of course it's an act well yeah Yeah. okay i was like are you suggesting that she's act (laughs) (laughs) she's actually she's misunderstood she's a girl boss she was just (laughs) she was you know no 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 she's totally aware of her um her actions the whole time like she knows that she's she's being quite manipulative. Like when she goes to see the doctor and say, can you just tell Richard that Danny can't come home with us? But then when Richard comes in, she's just like, oh, great news. Danny can come home with us. Like, Mrs. Harlan, what do you want me to do? I want you to tell my husband that it would be better for Danny to stay here at Warm Springs. But that isn't true. It would be much better for him to go to Back of the Moon. But surely it could do no harm for him to stay here or perhaps go back to school. And if you'll only tell my husband... Why don't you tell him? Because coming from you... Richard. Hello, Doctor. Oh, Richard, I've got such wonderful news. Dr. Mason has just consented to let Danny come with us to Back of the Moon. While we were watching it, tips of it, like, the doctor's got this look on his face, like, he knows that kid's not coming back. (laughs) He's not making out of that lodge alive. So, yeah, Ellen kind of resents the fact that she has to care for Danny and takes things into her own hands, as it were... Um, by taking Danny out on the lake, um, Danny is attempting to swim from one edge of the lake to the other, and Ellen is in sort of a little rowboat. Danny begins to struggle, uh, saying that he has a cramp because he ate too much food earlier in the day, and Ellen just fucking watches him drown, which is brutal, and it's not until she hears Richard whistling that she sort of springs into action. She's like, oh, I have to save the kid. And unfortunately, he can't be saved and he dies. There's kind of a good parallel here, um, because if I'm remembering the chronology of the film correctly, there's a scene earlier where she's speaking with Richard and um, asking about um, his prior romantic entanglements. 
and he talks about following a, a woman and kind of being with her based on impulse. Like it was an active impulse. It was irrational. And so then um, when they're in the boat and Danny says that he would like to go swimming and she obviously rationally knows that he's not able to do that, um, that he's not recovered enough. Um, he's, he's eaten. It's a bad idea. But she's like, oh, we'll say you did it on impulse. Can I swim all the way across today? Think you could make it? Why, sure. I made it three quarters yesterday and I wasn't a bit tired. All right. If I make it today, can we show Dick tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow. And we don't have to tell him how long I've been practicing, do we? No. You can just pretend that you decided to do it on the spur of the moment. It's a good line, and Jean delivers it very well because she's a great actress. And so she's got that, um, the mark of all good actors where she can, uh, find kind of almost like a clunky piece of dialogue, but also make it believable that the other person would not uh, catch the double entendre, which would double entendre, double entendre, um, because I'm a hillbilly, which a lot of people would be like, you know, look, look at the lampshade. I'm hanging the lampshade, you know. Yeah, but I think Jean's good, so. all of all of her dialogue in this scene where it happens, she's just like like you know that scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> and like they all run to I don't know save Augustus Gloop, and Wonka's just like, oh no, don't. <laughs> stop. That's kind of like what her dialogue is doing, like um, when she's like, oh, take it easy, Danny. You're not making very much progress, Danny. It's quite emotionless and flat but that just makes it so much more sinister and troubling two great genes that taste great together so everyone believes that danny's death was an accident and ellen puts on a sympathetic front um, but she soon realizes that sort of a gulf has opened up between her and richmond richmond <laughs> richard um <laughs> Who And she's like, wow, he's really cut up about the death of his brother. What am I going to do about here? And Ruth suggests that Ellen should have a baby to solve all of their problems. Because what do you do to solve any dysfunctional relationship? It's introduce a child. So Ellen does just that, but she really resents the fact that she's pregnant and is really annoyed that you know, she's not allowed to walk upstairs or do any of the sporty stuff that she's used to doing. You'll have to behave yourself. Imagine eating shrimps at a time like this. Where's Richard? He went to town. They always upset you. I've been telling you that for years. Did Ruth go with him? Yes, I think so. And especially now in your condition. When did they leave? Right after lunch. And another thing, don't try to be so blamed athletic. What time is it, Mother? Almost five. You've got to stop gadding about. Gadding? What are you talking about? This baby's making a prisoner out of me. Now what are you having it for, then? I can't do anything. I can't go anyplace. I don't even see my husband. Why don't you have him come in here? Because I don't want him to see me this way. That doesn't make sense. Those are orders now. No shrimps, no stairs. And don't you budge off that couch. Um, and she's also quite angry when, uh, without her consent, her family remodel her beloved father's lab um, to be a nursery um, when she wanted it to remain just as it was, uh, totally untouched. Um, and she does admit to Ruth that she doesn't want the child and she calls it a little beast and makes some suggestion that she doesn't like what it's doing to her physically. 
Uh, and this culminates in Ellen staging her own miscarriage by throwing herself down the stairs, which is quite another sinister scene. Just that, like, shot of her positioning her little house slipper underneath the, like, lip of the carpet. Creepy. And she's got that cute little robe on, and she's, you know, her hair is done, and um, All her outfits the vanity. in this movie, on on point. I'll just say that for Oleg Cassini. That's, he did that right. She um she has a great, I, I love, I mean, it's, it's like one of the, her most iconic looks, but the sunglasses in the rowboat and that white mm. coat is just such a, such an iconic, I mean, looking so chic while murdering a child. <laughs> I mean, and also, um, I think it's interesting because the revulsion towards the pregnant body isn't something I, I can think of having seen in another Hollywood film. That kind of frank discussion yeah. of the idea that, yeah, that she's just really disgusted with her form. She says that she doesn't want Richard to see her in this state, and that's why she's locked herself up in her room, which later on is going to be um, one of the arguments that Vincent Price will use uh, to advance his um argument that ruth and richard spoiler alert have been you know plotting behind ellen's back to get rid of her the idea that you know oh she shut up kind of cloistered during her pregnancy meanwhile they're carrying on this dalliance behind her back but really it comes down to back to her vanity and back to her belief that her sexual appeal and her her control over richard is the most important like defining aspect at that point of not only of like her personality but of her entire life you know Mm. because she's alienated everyone else and she really has she really has nothing else yeah i also think too that she resents the fact that a child would then divert richard's attention Mm -hmm. away from her which is you know like the biggest no-no that could ever happen in that household which is you know why she killed danny (laughs) But when Ellen is in the hospital recovering from her miscarriage, her paranoia and her obsession with the fact that she believes uh, Richard and Ruth are having an affair sort of comes to the fore. And she has this argument with Richard, like after the publication of his book, because she's she's like, well, why didn't you dedicate it to me? You dedicated it to Ruth. And they have this argument, and she admits that I kill your brother and I do it again, kind of thing. What happened that day at Back of the Moon? You got rid of everybody else. Your mother, Ruth, Thorne. There was only Danny left. What were you thinking of? You never really cared for him. You only pretended to. What happened? Did he refuse to leave? Don't, Richard. Don't. Was that why you killed him? I didn't mean to let him drown. But you did, didn't you? You're a perfect swimmer. And the boat was so far away, and he was going down for the third time. You killed him. You let Danny drown, didn't you? Didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. I let him drown, and I'd do it again. I didn't want him around. I didn't want anyone but you. She also has an argument with Ruth at the hospital, and it's after this that she decides she's going to have the ultimate revenge because she believes that she's lost Richard forever. And that she's, you know, never going to mend what was broken with the confession that, you know, she killed Danny and she killed their child. So she poisons herself, making it look like Ruth had done it by using Ruth's things and planting sort of quasi-evidence in her room. 
And Richard, who is on his way somewhere, gets the call and he's told that Ellen is in hospital and that she's really sick and she dies later that night and she makes this request before she dies that she wants to be cremated and scattered alongside her father. And yep, after she dies, Ruth is charged with her murder with Vincent Price accusing her of killing Ellen so she and Richard could be together. Well, we should we should mention that uh, before she staged the poisoning, Ellen wrote a letter to Vincent Price accusing yeah. Ruth of doing it. So that's why he gets involved. Yeah, he's also like the district attorney. Yeah. And like he's grilling them both. He's got this like solid picture of what exactly he thinks has happened and what Ellen has made it look like has happened. And Richard, against his will, kind of testifies to Ellen's pathological jealousy and says that Ellen killed herself in an attempt to frame him and Ruth. And Ruth is acquitted, but Richard is sentenced to two years as an accessory to Danny's death because he admits that Ellen uh, confessed that she killed him to him and he didn't obviously tell anyone. Which is a little... I don't know if that... I mean... Would that actually hold up? Would he really go to prison for that? Yeah, at most that's like withholding evidence. Yeah, which is, I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about law <laughs> to dispute it. Um, uh, yeah, you specialize in bird law, so it's not, not really good field. <laughs> um, but I feel like also that Vincent Price does make a very convincing argument um, when he's listing off, like, did you love her in August? Did you love her in all these months? And he indicates that, or he makes the connection that Richard stopped loving her when Ruth moved in with them, which is it's pretty damning, but it's also, it's very, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit <laughs> levels of, uh, you know, theater. That's also when Price drops his absolute club banger. <laughs> Are you in love with Ruth? I refuse to answer. Then perhaps you'll answer this. Are you in love with Ruth? We're very good friends. Are you in love with her? I'm very fond. I want you to answer yes or no. I'm asking you a very simple question. Perhaps you didn't understand me. I shall repeat it for you. Are you in love with Ruth? 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 They have an also they have a really interesting relationship too. I find it um, interesting that there's this earlier confrontation between Vincent Price and Jean Tierney in New Mexico when he finds out that she's kind of thrown him over for Cornell Wilde and he he flies out or drives out or catamarans out or however he gets there to kind of have his have his say and um, the two of them are kind of sparring you know and there is that underlying mm. kind of tension between the two and that that sense of like uh that they're a very well matched pair there's this great intellect and this really these this 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 ferocity that both of them have because they're both cutthroat people and um it, it feels like really this is a it's a fair fight as it were and then when Cornell Wilde's on the stand, and I understand that Vincent Price obviously is just trying to get a conviction, but, you know, it, it, when he, he's like, well, what kind of monster are you suggesting that she is? It's like, he knows that she's kind of a terrible person, 
Um, so the the note of like incredulity that she could have done any of this is like a little funny to me <laughs> because it's like that's just who she is. I mean, how well did he know her? She's you know well, but also like if he's so cutthroat, he might just have seen that as totally reasonable behavior. That's a good point. You know. But he's also so pissy. He's so mad at Cornell. He's like, um, can you do me a favor? Can you read that one line where she says, um, we once met a great deal to each other. Can you explain to the court what that means? Can you explain <laughs> to the court <laughs> that she was wearing the ring I gave her and you still moved it, which was kind of fucked up, right? I mean, he's like very much airing the dirty laundry and it's it's kind of it's kind of excessive. I'm almost a little embarrassed for him. I'm like, okay. His feelings are hurt. He's obviously holding a little bit of resentment for that whole thing, but I think I can, yeah, I could kind of see like they would have been a better match for one another. But he just didn't look enough like Colonel Wild in um, Old Face to sort of, <laughs> like Tiff says, all of this is Cornell's fault because when you get on a train and a woman immediately tells you how much you look like her dead dad and then she finds that really hot, you should be running in the opposite direction. Yeah. <laughs> there were many times when he could have he could have seen the writing on the wall, but he just chose to there ignore it. There was a lot it. of should, times. The wall looked like Jean Tierney. As soon as he saw it, like, getting all the ashes over herself, he should have been like, well, it's been fun. Uh, I need to go. There's also this at the dinner table when um, she's like, Does, oh, he looks so much like father. And she's got that little, that little, I, I love Jean's, um, it's not quite a lisp, but you know, because of her, because of her buck teeth, that like kind of whistling, yeah, her overbite, that that whistling she has on the ass where it kind of turns into a shh sound. It, it's just so, so wonderful. And um, she's like, doesn't he look just like father? I think he looks just like father. And then everyone else at the table is like, I mean, kind of, like, I guess I can see it, like, a little bit. And she's like, he looks just like father. End of discussion. <laughs> I will not brook disagreement at this table. And then it cuts to, like, l- later on. They're like, oh, my God, he does look just like her dad. That's a bad sign. Everyone else knew. But, yeah, so he does eventually get out of prison and he gets on his little rowboat and goes back to his lodge, which is, it's called what, Beyond the Moon? Um, Back of the Moon. Back of the Moon. And he's welcomed by Ruth, who he did in fact love. She confessed that she loved him in the courtroom uh, before she, like, faints. Um, And then, yeah, he goes into her loving arms. Anyway, that's the story. And it's a story that, uh, in 1944, our podcast punching bag, Daryl Lefzanik, purchased the rights to the as-yet-unpublished novel, Leave It Heaven, for an exorbitant fee of $100,000 after a furious bidding war. So a lot of other studios were really intent on getting this novel because they knew that whatever Ben Ames Williams was publishing, they wanted a piece of it and they wanted to make it into a movie. But Zanuck won in the end, um, shitbag that he is, and... He committed to adapting it for the screen. He would leave it in the hands of the Ukrainian-born scriptwriter uh, Joe Swirling, um, who did the screenwriting for uh, The Westerner, The Blood and Sand remake in 1941, uh, The Pride of the Yankees, and Hitchcock's Lifeboat, and also would assign director John M. Stahl to help transform the novel into a workable screenplay. When they handed in their first draft, uh, Zanuck was not impressed. He insisted that the script should stick closer to the original novel. Initially, Zanuck had wanted the film to start with the arrest of Richard and Ruth, 
uh, but was argued around into retaining the novel's original framing with Richard being released from prison. Stahl and Swirling had also created a more melodramatic ending that involved Ellen's mother giving testimony that would exonerate Ruth and Richard, but were persuaded to retain the novel's original ending. Once they were finally happy with it, um, it was submitted to the Production Code Administration in 1944, and the board strongly advised the studio to minimise any reference to Ellen inducing her own miscarriage, with them noting, it will be absolutely essential to remove any flavour that Ellen plans to murder the unborn child merely because she is misshapen. (laughs) It should be definitely established that her reason for murdering the child is that she thinks that the newborn will replace her in her husband's affections. This is important in order to avoid any flavour that is normally connected with what could be termed abortion. I don't like the use of the word flavor there. The use of the word misshapen is just one of those like antiquated <laughs> words that is so strange today. It's just, it smacks of men in a room being like, mm, I don't think we should allow that to happen. And it's like, maybe shut up. But I like the idea that it's fine if it's because she's a cold-blooded murderer though like then it's okay i think in their minds i'm not saying this is you know correct thinking in any way um because anyone who thinks abortions are wrong um is a fucking moron but um i think if they frame it that way it's less likely that you know ordinary people might feel the same way like ordinary women could identify with that whereas with Ellen, because of the psychology and the way that she is, is so extreme. If they linked it more to her, you know, crazy jealousy, then I don't know, in their own twisted way, it would make it less wrong. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, whatever they did to the script, it was eventually approved after a second rejection, which implied that Richard and Ellen had been uh, engaged in sex before marriage, which is just simply not on. So they had to remove that as well. So at the time the rights were purchased, rumours began to swirl immediately for who would be given the lead. Uh, The Hollywood Reporter speculated that it would be given to Tallulah Bankhead or Ida Lupino. Then later, Faye Marlowe had been reported um, as the younger sister slash cousin. Uh, There is another rumour that the part of Ellen had been offered to Rita Hayworth, but she turned it down. I really couldn't substantiate this claim. I just saw it written a bunch of places without any attribution. I was just like, I mean, sure. Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that any of the top actresses who were under contract at Fox would have been at least briefly considered. Considered. Yeah. Yeah. But it would be at a cocktail party in Romanoff's where Zanuck would tell Jean Tierney that he was considering giving the part of Ellen to her. Tierney had coveted the part immediately after reading the novel and told Zanuck that he wouldn't regret it if he gave her the part. A few days later, he called back and said, you're Ellen. Uh, the rest of the cast is rounded out by, obviously, Cornell Wilde as Richard, Jane Crane as Ruth, Vincent Price as Russell Quinton, and Mary Phillips as Mary Barrent. Is that how you say it? I cannot yeah. for the life of me remember. Uh, and Ray Collins as Glenn Roby. So after working on the script, the Azerbaijan 
Bourne director John M. Stahl, who was born Jacob Morris Streslitsky, was set to direct the film. He had begun directing in Hollywood in 1914 after fleeing the Russian Empire for the United States when he was a child. Um, he had begun working as a theatre actor in New York before moving on to director. Louis B. Mayer would sign him in 1919 and he would play a role in the merger that saw uh, MGM, I won't say be created, it's more like Spawn because it's <laughs> yeah, really something say. evil that happened. <laughs> um, uh, it, it was kind of, it was born in the same way that Damien is born in the Omen. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was it was um, brought into our world. It was unleashed. Let's yes. just say that. In 1927, Stahl was one of the founding members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and later that year he would become the executive of the ill-fated studio Tiffany Pictures, which collapsed in 1929. Um, from this failure, he would sign with Universal and direct some of his best-known pictures, Imitation of Life uh, and Magnificent Obsession which were both remade by Douglas Sirk. And he would then continue directing and producing films and shorts until we find him here on Leave Her to Heaven. Uh, so this would be Stahl's first and only foray into Technicolor and was shot by Leon Shamroy. Now, Leon Shamroy is a kind of a wildcard character. I won't go into too much detail about his crazy life, but I'll, I'll drop in some highlights for you. So Shamroy cut his teeth as a technician in the lab at Fox before moving to become a cameraman on Charles Hutchinson's action films at Pathé. He would make experimental films in Europe and in Mexico and would almost always be broke. Um, he would have a brief stint at Columbia before leaving as he was considered too artistic for them. And he would then go on to work with Jack Cummings, who is Mayer's nephew, on a series of MGM parody films, parodies of famous films starring dogs. I've seen these on TCM. They're insane. Yeah. So apparently so quiet on the canine front raised the ire of the Humane Society because of how realistic the scenes of dogs getting shot down were. <laughs> I'd never seen these before or heard they existed until I read this and I was just like, hang on, what? why are we making a dog version of All Quiet on the Western Front? Why not, is really the question. Well, I guess why not? I mean, that's what Jack Cummings thought. But from here, like, obviously he had enough of shooting dogs down. He would go on to make ethnographic films in Asia uh, where he would have a harrowing experience on a ship named the Empress of Canada. So this is a little exciting story, especially for Fridgy. So two days out of Yokohama, a fourth-class passenger stabbed 30 people on board um, Holy shit. the ship to death in a murderous rampage. Shamroy was lucky to escape, and even luckier still when he managed to escape with his camera and film intact. He would covertly take footage traveling through Japan, China, and much of Southeast Asia. And then incredibly, years later when working on the film Crash Dive in 1943, he discovered that noted Fridgy favorite Tyrone Power had also been aboard the Empress of Canada that fateful night. So imagine just like bumming around with Ty and then him being like, hey, want to hear this crazy story that happened to me? I nearly got stabbed on this boat. And then Tai Power being like, hey, I nearly got stabbed on a boat. How the fuck oh, I love it. do you stab 30 people to death without getting subdued? Yeah, how like, wh how, 
many staff were on this boat. Like, surely burly sailors. There's got to be someone. Do you have like ten you. arms, each with a knife? Like, <laughs> got knives on your feet. Well, it was like, a knife-themed party, and everyone had knives. No, I'm looking this. I'm looking this up. Okay, let's see. Leon Shamroy must have um, broken some sort of uh, some sort of uh, NDA because I can't find anything about it. But that's fine. Yeah, um, I've got something in the Palestine Bulletin. Okay, there we go. Um, from the 9th of June, 1931. Hang on, it's just loading. <clears throat> Steerage passenger runs amok. 31 aboard, dead and injured. A murderous half hour aboard the liner, Empress of Canada, says Reuter message from Tokyo. They've spelt Tokyo with an I, uh, so that's an interesting choice, uh, was revealed on its arrival at Yokohama when it brought two dead of the Chinese crew and 29 others injured as a result of a Filipino steerage passenger who joined the ship at Honolulu, suddenly running amok on the day before his arrival in Japan. The madman dashed up the steerage quarters, stabbing right and left and reaching the saloon deck, which fortunately was deserted as the passenger were breakfasting. He then took refuge in the forepart of the ship, where he was located after a 30-minute search. He was finally captured by means of the use of hot water from the ship's hose and placed in irons. He will probably be handed over to the authorities at Hong Kong. The injured included two Canadian members of the crew, 18 Chinese, and seven Japanese, comprising both steerage passengers and crew, also two Chinese women. Nine of the injured have been taken to hospital and three are not expected to recover. Oh my god. Wow. Um, I found an article um, from a newspaper in Singapore, hold on, from the time, and he provides his rationale, I guess, for the attack. He claimed that he heard the Japanese members of the crew uh, talking about him and th- saying that they were going to throw him overboard when they reached Yokohama, that he was going to be uh, tied up with rope and thrown overboard. Um, he had no knife of his own. Um, he was given one and says, a Filipino friend gave me a knife and I started to stab them all. He So he seem- seems like a fun guy. So he killed between um, two and five. Okay. That's a little more manageable than the 30 I was imagining. Yeah. I mean, I guess he stabbed. Yeah, he stabbed 30. It's just, uh, yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if people got to the hospital and then, yeah. That's crazy. Since the Okay. I like this detail. I had no knife of my own since the one I had, since the one I had given to a Japanese boy when I left Honolulu. I like that detail. He's like, I didn't have a knife. Because I gave it to a kid. <laughs> like, you give <laughs> knives to kids. So I had to, <laughs> I had to borrow one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like you do. What an interesting story. I had never heard that in all of it. I mean, I guess maybe I read it in a Thai book a million years ago and just completely blocked it from my memory. But that's such a crazy story. But, you know, that's also something that would happen to Thai. Thai would be on a boat <laughs> where somebody got stabbed. See, this is why you never go on cruises. You either get stabbed to death I or you sw- get gastro. And it's like, I at that swear point, to God. What is worse? Look at fucking gastro. Legionnaire's disease. It's like growing up in Vegas, that was like a, a thing always in the news. It was like Legionnaire's disease, Legionnaire's disease. And how it like in, ho- in hotels, people getting Legionnaire's disease. And I'm like, look, if you can get horrific diseases just by staying in, uh, again, a, Vegas is much cleaner than most places you stay. It's like, why the fuck would I want to be on a floating Petri dish <laughs> for like two weeks? Well, like, I saw that like new cruise ship that's like... 290 days or something like around the world trip and it's like I cannot imagine like a worse situation to find myself in like not only is there no escape but it's also a cruise ship like camp is one thing but a cruise ship is something entirely different 
Um, just absolutely the worst. And I mean, I, I assume if I was ever on a cruise ship, it would immediately turn into the Poseidon adventure. So he did make it off the boat and he did catch up with Ty Power about, you know, what happened on the boat. Um, but by the time that Leave Her to Heaven rolled around, uh, Shamroy was back working at Fox and had a champion in Zanuck after his ingenious method of using minimal lighting on the set of the pacifist film Wilson had impressed Zanuck so much that he kissed Shamroy after seeing the rushes. Shamroy had this technique of using uh, natural lighting in scenes um, instead of artificially lighting everything um, and we kind of see that uh, in this movie especially in some of the interior scenes uh, in the desert ranch you see the sort of cool dark light when they go into dark rooms and then it's sort of offset by the artificial light casting sort of crazy shadows through the the stair railings on the roof and it's really cool I like I like it I think it's cool but this was something that he developed at Fox and it caused Zanuck to kiss him in the face, which is a fate worse than death, I would assume. <laughs> um, Shamroy would also be the person who shot Marilyn Monroe's first screen test. There are a couple of quotes on him about this, but I feel like he's just made these up in retrospect because he was like, oh, as soon as I saw her, I knew she was going to be a big star. I'm like, I mean. I mean, also, like, do you have eyes? Yeah. You know? I mean, obviously, Yes. <laughs> But it's like, are you saying this now as in, like from a genuine point of view or is this just because she was a big star that you're trying to get you like five minutes of fame in? Like you were just there operating the camera, dude. Chill out. Are you implying that Mickey Rooney didn't really... Uh, what, what did Mick... What, what did Ron claim? Mickey Rooney's exactly. never made a bad choice or had a bad idea. <laughs> Look at all of his incredibly successful business ventures. His inventions, his... Who else did Rock claim to launch career-wise? It was Marilyn, and it was someone else completely ludicrous. I mean, technically Mickey Mouse. <laughs> oh, right. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I was thinking, like, Sinatra or something. But maybe, okay, also, I wouldn't pass Rock to have maybe made a passing comment once claiming to have discovered Frank Sinatra. So maybe I'm no, right about that. that in C- the sizzle reel? Like, doesn't he yes. talk about Frank Sinatra in the sizzle reel? Oh, my God. The sizzle reel is, like, ingrained in my brain. Tiff, <laughs> tiff, tiff, put in thank you, goodbye. I just wanted to tell you I've seen a lot of your movies. Thank you. Aww. And I think you're great. Thank you very much. Aww, Enjoy your that's meal. Very Thank you very much. We just did our two person musical in New Jersey recently. Thank you. Goodbye. God bless you. God bless you, Carmen. Thanks for saying Oh, also, um, we we need to talk about we need to, we really should do a Mickey Rooney episode just to like break down. Well, we've tried every time we've done this, it's been <laughs> some kind of horrible technological disaster. So maybe we should do kind of like a meta episode where we make it about the sizzle reel, but also like we could write like pitches for like episodes of the TV show that never got made, Ronk's reality show, like an episode for Ronk and Jango to the zoo and like talk about what we think would have happened. Like, I've got lots of ideas. This is our foray into the metaverse, is it? This is e- just where- <laughs> exactly. The broader Mickey Rooney. Uh, I, now I'm thinking about Ronk. Um, you know, I think it's very funny when people say this because sometimes I believe it. Like there's a really good, now there's a really good story about um, Ava Gardner where I'm not, like, an Ava obsessive, so I'm probably misremembering the story, um, but it, it was something like she went to go visit her sister in New York, and her sister had married a photographer or a guy who knew photographers, and he saw her, and he was like, holy shit, she needs to go to Hollywood. You know, we need to send her picture to someone. But oftentimes, when, when you hear these sorts of... I don't know. I, yeah, I think you're right that people oftentimes are trying to exaggerate their 
influence in retrospect and and also their um their ability to pick winners like i always think of that story that joel mccray told about how um he did a, sc- a screen test at fbo which fbo later became rko i want to say and um he auditioned with this beautiful blonde and they told him like you're good and they told her you have no future in movies you need to quit acting you need to go do something else with your life and it was gene harlow so you know mm. I, yeah, I I think, you know, people like to take credit for a lot of things. Also, I mean, what what say reasonably would he have had in, you know, what happened to the screen test after he saw it? Um, he couldn't even stop a stabbing. He couldn't, he couldn't even stop 30 people from getting stabbed on a ship. So. Um, Shamroy was uh, a bit of a perfectionist, which... Uh, often had him at odds with style. There were reports of them being quite often at heads with one another for how to set up and light shots um, because they were both, you know, had very strong ideas about how they should achieve things. Um, For my part, I think what I like most about this uh, film is how both colour and landscape are used so effectively. The cinematography in this movie is really on another level that I think even sort of modern films uh, often fail to achieve. I think that the contrast between, you know, all those beautiful landscape shots of the desert and of the lake and of, you know, all of the natural world contrasted with, you know, all of those really tied in, you know, interior shots really emphasize the darkness of the plot? I think, if anything, I think cinematography has kind of declined as an art form, if only because the the technical demands of shooting on film and, and, the, and the, the kind of ins and outs of, of film stock and film development and all, all those kinds of factors that go into it and that you know, that, that needing to know, um, what particular, like, if you're shooting in black and white, you know, what particular shade you need to use to create a particular shade of gray on camera, you know what I mean? That, that understanding where all of these things are moving in harmony with costume design and set decoration and all that. I think that oftentimes it seems like now, you'll hear about cinematography in a movie and I feel like people don't either a don't know what cinematography is or um, B, it'll be like, it just looks like they slapped an Instagram filter over the camera. You know, that's why movies that are shot nowadays in black and white with maybe the exception of the artist never really look good. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Like Mank looks terrible. Yeah. No, there's not, you don't get that. You don't get the softness. You don't get the texture. You don't get the, um, the range of values. You, you get something that looks like it was, it was shot and then it was kind of haphazardly kind of, yeah, just like t- tossed a black and white filter over from some sort of free iPhone app, you know, which is a shame because I color think- grading is such an interesting process, but. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. Penny agrees. Penny. <laughs> She's getting really loud now. She's like. <laughs> She's just lamenting the fact that um, the problem with today is that restriction and limitation breeds ingenuity mm-hmm. and because today technology has taken us to the space where you have so much room for error and that you have you know so much license to do everything like you don't have to worry about how expensive film is you don't need to worry about you know setting up shots perfectly because they can be cleaned up in post there's a, a certain level of skill and creativity that's missing from modern film whereas in you know these older films you only had so much film because it was incredibly expensive, you only had, you know, so much lighting that you could use in a particular scene. You only had so many different ways to create a scene, 
like whether it was on a sound stage, whether it was like on location, he didn't have fucking green screen, you know, that you could light perfectly on a computer. So it bred a lot more experimental and ingenious ways of capturing shots and using shots in an artistic sense um, because you're not just relying on, you know, Wes Anderson's fucking school of post-production where everything's perfectly yeah. symmetrical, which is a great shame. I Those movies, I mean, I, I get them aesthetically. Like, I obviously, like, anyone who... Everyone gets the aesthetic. You, you have to be not paying attention to pick up on it. But um, for me, there's just... They feel very... They feel soulless, the Wes Anderson movies. They feel very overproduced. And I think that's a big part of it, yeah. you know? Um, it, it not yeah. to be, like, insufferable. It's kind of like when people compare the difference between listening to something on vinyl and listening to something on CD. It's like you do lose a certain element of, like, of, of character to it. And I think it's the, it's the character of filmmaking, the the reminder that you're watching something that is like effectively an inorganic creation is the charm of it and the beauty of it. And so the attempts to like simulate everyday life and to simulate the human eye to me aren't interesting because at the point it's just photojournalism. Like it's not, you know, that's yeah. not, that's not an artistic lens. You're it's, it's documentary. It's, it, it, that's not interesting yeah. to me. And also, yeah, especially I, I like it when they take risks and yeah. you know, make it something that you don't see every day. And like you, your point about the expense, especially filming in Technicolor, because Technicolor, you know, had to be processed at a distinct separate lab, which of course later on is going to lead to the rise of things like, you know, Eastman Color and Metro Color and all these attempts by the studios to replicate the look and the feel of Technicolor, um, but with a more streamlined, in-house, less expensive process. And then you never again reach the heights of the really dazzling brilliance of Technicolor that you get like in this movie or in so many of the classic MGM musicals or any of that. Like you never, you don't ever get that, that vividness again, which is such a shame. I don't know. I I feel like there's almost this kind of vibe now where it's like, it doesn't matter what a movie looks like. And um, maybe it's just because they're, they're, I've talked about this for years and it's very much like old man yells at cloud, but I feel really strongly about like when people are like, oh, well, it shouldn't matter if you watch a movie on your phone, like you should still be, I'm like, okay, but it's still a visual medium, (laughs) you know, it's not a radio drama. It's not a podcast. You know, you're looking at something. And yeah, I mean, on the flip side though, I mean, I said it last time to don't fucking care to, uh, risk my life to see something like June. So like all of the modern directors now that are saying, oh, you have to see it on the big screen. It's like, what exactly am I seeing on the big screen here? Like, is it just something that was entirely made on a computer? Like, why would I need to see that on a big screen when I know that you're not really framing any of these shots in a skillful or considered way because they're all made on a computer? That's a great point. Um, after the fact. So it's like, I resent that. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, I, 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 have like a, I have a great respect for people who work in post-production. And and there's obviously there's great artistry. I mean, again, like I mentioned color grading. But I, I feel like we've dumbed down the visuals to such an extent where people, I mean, everything looks like it's shot for television. You know what I mean? And it's like, 
they're two different mediums. It reminds me of when you watch, like, I will always shit on the Pelican Brief, but when you watch movies from the 90s and they look like they were made to watch on a rental VHS tape and that everything is yellow and flooded with yellow light. And then obviously we had that arc about 10 years ago where everything was blue. I hate that shit. Yeah. I hate that shit. Don't tell me I feel cold. I'll feel cold if the movie makes me feel cold. You know what I mean? You're not doing anything. Apart from pissing yeah. me off. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. It's just it's just annoying because you can you can see examples where it's just so beautiful. Like in this movie, colour throughout is so beautiful. And then you look at, you know, whatever is made today and just like everything is so flat and so cold when it's you know, in this older film, everything had to be so very considered, like down to the colour of her outfits, um, or the colour of the set. You know, it's all perfectly structured to suit what's happening. There's also something to be said for a production in which there is a financial investment in playing to the physical appeal of uh, the star. And obviously that's what the studio era thrived on. You know what I mean? Because it, the name above mm. the tie, you know what I mean? The, the name on the marquee, that was, that was what, what sold the picture to the general public. But I feel very strongly about the idea that one of the greatest pleasures of film is to see a really extraordinarily beautiful or remarkable person who is larger than life being framed in, in in a truly artistic way. You know what I mean? There's that element of like portraiture that exists um, at this point in time. Every single shot that Gene Tierney is in, it's, it's meant to be breathtaking because it's meant to remind you that Gene Tierney is breathtaking um, because mm. Fox derives value and money from your continued fascination with Gene Tierney. I, I feel like that's also missing too. You know what I mean? Like I... That it's almost like it'd be regarded as being like frivolous or something, but like there's nothing more beautiful than the human face and the human form. Yeah, I feel unless like you're a furry. Modern, modern, modern movies. I mean, you can take Timothy Switch LA out of anything and put anyone else in there, and it would work exactly the same. Like the shots aren't tailored to the talent. Yeah, I mean, look at the the way that you know you'll have movies where entire color palettes are designed to, to suit a, a particular... I mean, how... Look at a Hitchcock movie, you know, particularly the way that Hitchcock tailored things to his female stars. I mean, there is a definite sense that this is... This production is built around a particular person and not just kind of like a vague idea. I mean, look at, at Capra. When they made Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, because Gene, Gene Arthur did not like to be filmed on one specific side of her face. I can't remember if it was the right or the left. I want to say the right. And so Congress in that movie is effectively built backwards. Like it's a mirror image of, of how the halls uh, of Congress are actually laid out so that the set is built so that when, G uh, when Jean Arthur is standing there or sitting there, it's on her good side. You know what I mean? I mean, the entire production is built around her. And I, that's like, again, um, a level of thought that I don't think goes into filmmaking anymore. There's definitely like that drag and drop attitude towards it which mm. is a shame i mean also think that like they should have done everything for gene arthur yes that's i true. mean at all times so they should have reading the city after her she should have been mayor <laughs> should have been president she i mean president. come on uh i mean what side of her face was that tiff i mean i got you that box set after much uh <laughs> hassling of tcm customer service oh god 
I'm trying to see it in my head now. I feel it's it's the right, isn't it? It's you the right. You always see it from the right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no. I. You know. Now I'm thinking it's the. <laughs> I. <laughs> I'm a kind of moron who uses the wrong turn signal, so you can't like ask ask me to to pick an angle. I'm not going to be able to process it. It's like when I'm down on the osteopath table, and they're just like, "Oh, just just lift your right arm for me." I'm like, "There's no way. I'm lying down. I can't tell you which." <laughs> Which way's up? Like, My right, you're right, they're right. You know, okay, Tiff put Stage in... Stage right, like, what are we doing? Tiff put, Tiff put in Charlie and Mac, like, no, you're... We don't... We're two people. We can't have the same left, dude. Because that's how I feel about them. <laughs> How's this? This looks jingle better? Bell, uh, no, you gotta move it a little to the left. All right. There we go. How's that? No, your other left. Uh, my other left? I only have one left. It's just an expression. Just move it to the other direction. What would that expression be for? For someone who has two lefts? No, no. Just move it the other way. Move it the other way. Towards your left. Your left and my left are the same because we're facing the same direction. Eh, we're two different people. We can't have the same left. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Here we go again. Shamroy himself, even though he was known for his various innovations when it came to cinematography and camera technology and techniques, um, he kind of resented a lot of the changes that he helped kind of make ubiquitous within the industry. He once said, the obtrusive camera is like a chattering person, something we can do without. It's okay for the camera to join the conversation, so to speak, but it must never dominate. It must never distract from the story. The real art of cinematography lies in the camera's ability to match the varied moods of players and the story or the pace of the scene. Um, so he wasn't really about a lot of the flashier stuff. Um, but that being said, he would go on to be the first person to shoot in Cinemascope on the film The Robe, then the first Cinemascope 55 process film, The King and I. He really didn't like doing this, but he is also the one who perfected it, which feels just like us. We're like, I hate doing this, but... <laughs> but we're just so goddamn good at it. we got to keep going. <laughs> In terms of the score, it was developed by uh, pioneering composer uh, Alfred Newman, um, who had himself worked on over 200 films. Um, he is regarded as one of the most influential composers of the golden age of early film and he inspired you know so many other composers at 20th century flocks including bernard herman alex north and composer of the laura school david raxon all of whose music was a little bit radical at the time but would never have had major careers in hollywood without alfred newman's influence producer nick redmond would say the legacy of Alfred Newman and his influence on the language of music for cinema is practically unmatched by anyone in Hollywood history. As an executive, he was hard but fair. As a mentor to his staff, he was revered. The orchestras under his baton, or baton, sorry, uh, delighted in his abilities as a conductor. The music he himself composed, often under extreme emotional duress, is among the most gorgeous ever written. Not big in physical stature, he was giant in character, a titan in the world he loved and dominated. 
He was a true musical force and one that cannot in any sense be replaced. So he was just on staff at Fox when this film rolled through and just made the score. I don't, it doesn't have the same impact on me as the score for Laura, but I don't think it's a bad score. There are some nice moments to it. I think it's, I think it, it smooths over um, some of the more improbable moments um, like, cause when Tiff and I watched this the other day, I made the comment that at the beginning of the movie, Cornell Wilde gets in the canoe. And then at the end, uh, two hours later, while this story has been unfolding in the background, like it's being told in real time, he finally rose up to back of the moon. And you're like, Cornell Wilde's been in the canoe for two hours, but Alfred Newman's score comes stirring in and you know what I mean like this like this gorgeous wind or whatever and then you're just kind of like back in the, the rapture of this beautiful reunion between Cornell Wilde and Gene Crane and oh it's so happy oh thank god blah 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 and then the end you know what I mean So it does, it does, it's an excellent bit of, um, kind of like stage, like misdirection. Don't look over there. Don't look at the fact that Cornell Wilde has been in a boat for two hours. <laughs> He's just paddling on one bit. side in a little circle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe he was exploring where Danny drowned. I don't know. Kind of just sitting out there. Maybe a guy on his canoe went rogue and stabbed 31 people. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was Gene back from the dead and now he can't use that argument again. No one will believe him. <laughs> so in terms of. The filming itself, uh, the filming for it, took place between May and August 1945 and was initially supposed to be shot in the the Pacific Northwest in Washington and Oregon, but uh, ultimately the film was shot in Northern California on Bass Lake in the Sierra Nevada. Some shooting also took place in Monterey. The desert scenes were shot in several locations in Arizona, including Sedona, Flagstaff, and the Granite Dells north of Prescott. Any of these places you've been to, Candace? I have been to Sedona. Um, it's very beautiful. Sedona is now notable for the, the fact that in the 80s, I believe it was, there started um, stories were, were kind of coming into fruition that there were uh, vortexes surrounding Sedona where you could like commune with the universe or the aliens or whatever. So um, over the last couple of decades, Sedona, which used to be kind of just this kind of beautiful out of the way Western town where they shot a lot of uh, movies and uh, kind of had a couple of vacation homes and was otherwise a fairly small community, has kind of turned into a mecca for the weirdest white new age hippies in North oh, America. Great. They don't so, ruin anything. They're terrible, um, but it's a beautiful little town. And I love Northern Arizona. Prescott, uh, and I've never been to, I haven't been to Prescott and I haven't been to Flagstaff. I would like to go to Flagstaff. My parents have been to Flagstaff. It's 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 lovely, apparently. Not that I, uh, <laughs> every time I say that about like someplace I've never been, it feels like that bit on the office when Michael's like, love inside jokes, would love to be a part of one someday. <laughs> so I feel describing travel because I've been like three places. But anyway, yeah, very beautiful. For the scenes set in Warm Springs, Georgia, they were shot in Bush Gardens, Pasadena, um, with the exterior and long shots actually shot on location at Warm Springs. So Tierney describes Stahl as a taskmaster, 
and describes an occasion on Saturday night just before quitting time that they ran through the scene they were shooting on Monday. Uh, this scene was when Ellen watches Danny drown in the lake. Uh, Tierney was very anxious for Style to see her play it and find out that what she envisioned for the character matched that of Style and recalled in her autobiography, after I had finished my lines, there was a hush. Then suddenly Style groaned, that was perfect, just the way it should be done, but oh god, you will never do it again, never in a million years. I walked over to his chair and said calmly, of course I will, I've been re rehearsing it that way all along, I can do it again, I promise you. Ignoring me, he rose and called out quitting time. He left the set mumbling, you will never get it that way again, never. The rest of the weekend I was a wreck, worrying about Monday morning. But to Stahl's surprise, I recreated the scene exactly the way I had rehearsed it. Which is, I mean, it's a terrifying scene. And she plays it perfectly because she's a Jean fucking Tierney, so... <laughs> Sucks to suck, Stahl. Anyway... Someone who did not fare very well during the drowning scene was Daryl Hickman, who played Danny. Stahl was particularly hard on him. He never referred to him by his name, only calling him boy or son for the duration of the shoot. Jesus! And shooting the scene itself was tough, as the water was so cold that Hickman caught pneumonia. But when word came through that Zanuck thought the rushes of the drowning scene were some of the best he'd ever seen calling it the best moment in all cinema, Hickman suddenly became Stahl's favourite, instead choosing to pick on Cornell Wilde, calling him son or boy. More people should have picked on Cornell Wilde. <laughs> Speaking of Cornell Wilde, uh, Stahl was particularly tough on him as well. Tierney remembered that the scene where Ellen proposes uh, was quite difficult for Wilde to film. Tierney said... Uh, the scene was diff difficult for Cornell, who was meant to be weak and couldn't quite bring it off. At the end of each take, there were several gaffers and crew who would whistle at me. Ordinarily, I wouldn't find a whistle flattering, but in this case, it meant approval. Impatiently, Stahl waved his hand at the crew and turned to Wilde. They all seemed to understand how the scene should be played, he demanded. Why can't you? Which is fucking... <laughs> Brutal. Tierney, for her part, kept high spirits on the set, joking in between shots at the end of a long day. Now I'm getting very nervous and tired. I might just collapse and cost the studio millions of dollars. <laughs> um, which I guess you can do if you're Gene Tierney. I mean, do whatever. But you gotta um, be careful because it's Fox. So they might take you out back and shoot you like old yeller. <laughs> like that time they tried to sue Janet Gaynor for falling off a horse or whatever. Whereas with um, MGM, they just, I don't know, don't like you to turn around. They just pump you full of uppers and they tell you, get back out there, kid. You know, what's very funny about this is, is we're, we're big Cornell Wilde fans. I think it's safe to say. Cornell Wilde advocates. Yeah. Cornell Wilde connoisseurs. And um, one thing I think is really interesting about this movie, because again, because it's in Technicolor and you get to see this, is that I think Cornell has really interesting eyes. And I, I made a note while we were watching this that the scene on the train when they first meet is interesting because you, these quick cuts between the two of them, you get this wonderful contrast between their eyes where Cornell has these kind of like soft, like cow eyes, you know what I mean? Like very docile. <laughs> Black and, eyes, dead, like a doll's eyes. <laughs> exactly. They're like very docile and, and kind of like trusting and kind of like, you know, they, they come across as being like very gentle and very naive. And then kind of Jean's got these inquisitive, searching 
they're like this icy, you know, kind of there's this, this sheen and this hardness to them. It's just it's interesting. Um, she's so glamorous, but at the same time, she she strikes you even when she's not playing a murderous sociopath as of being someone of such great intelligence, which at the time obviously is very rare amongst the glamour girls in Hollywood because that's very actively discouraged. But Cornell strikes you immediately as being someone who, although he's this accomplished writer and he has this, he has had, you know, a real, you know, uh, an education and he's kind of a man of the world and he's traveled and all these things. He's just immediately putty in her hands. And I think it's a hard part for that reason, because like you said, it requires him to be kind of weak and led astray and vulnerable and really the last person to figure out what his wife is capable of, because everyone else has called it long before that point. Um, and it's kind of it's a kind of a hard thing to balance, especially as a, a man, I'm going to say probably in the 1940s, the idea of playing somebody who is um, so... Yeah, and you think about his roles up until that point, they're quite macho, yeah. stronger roles. Even just the way that Gene Tierney's character is kind of set up to be this really kind of go-getting, active person who gets what she wants by any means, it's definitely a departure from some of the female leads he probably had played against mm-hmm. up until that point. So I can see where the discomfort in his – like figuring out what his role was meant to be in that kind of situation. Um, but I also think that Jean Tierney is like, she takes the part by the horns and really, <laughs> really nails it. Yeah, It's an interesting note on their eyes though, because the way that color brings out Jean Tierney's eyes makes it so much more intense. Like the, the coldness within is so much more pronounced because her eyes are in color um, it's it gives it an edge that like perhaps in something like Laura we don't really see as oh, yeah. well. Like it reminds me almost um, while watching it reminded me very strongly of Jimmy Stewart. Uh, how it's not until you see Jimmy Stewart in color and you realize that blue. You know what I mean? How 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 stark they are and how strongly they stand out from his face. And she's kind of got the same thing going on because her beauty is otherwise. You know, she's got the dark hair. It's a great. She's got a great contrast going on. And um, her eyes are just so alive, which, you know, that Tyra Binks would say, smizing. Um, a lot of people don't really know how to act with their eyes. It's not it's not a strength that they have, but she certainly has it. And it's interesting because Cornell obviously has always had the same eyes, but I don't think they function that way with that like, air of vulnerability that they do in this movie and necessarily in other productions. I think it's, I don't know. I think, I think he's an underrated actor. Um, and I think it's also a shame that oftentimes when he is in a good movie, he's oftentimes overshadowed by a really gifted actress you know, a really gifted co-star. Anyway, it's interesting. But anyway, so I'm like writing all these like rhapsodic notes about like this interplay between their eyes and then just goes alien eyeball bitch. <laughs> Which is true. He is an alien eyeball bitch because they stick out so far. <laughs> and he's got such a small face. Otherwise, he's got a really interesting face. I think if you compare him to how Vincent Price shows up in color, you kind of yeah. get like, oh, yes, that's a man who was meant to be in colour, whereas in Vincent Price, you're like, that's a man who's meant to be in black and white. You also get a sense of Vincent Price of how, I I know tall chat is like weather chat and I can't stop engaging in it, but Vincent Price comes across as being so physically dominant in this movie. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And oftentimes he doesn't come across as tall as he really is. But in this one, he is literally a looming presence, particularly over Cornell Wilde. That's why it's such a good, um, when he's sitting in the witness stand, the construction of the courtroom is really interesting because it doesn't look like your typical movie courtroom. Like, you know, he's just sitting in kind of like effectively an easy chair while Vincent Price looms over him and yells at him about how he stole his girlfriend. And there's that that physical interplay between the two is so interesting. But it's also interesting because he doesn't loom over Jean Tierney when they have that no. argument. No, because she is the one in control. She is always, you know what yeah. I mean? She's absolutely the one in control in that relationship. Yeah. Like she is in all of her relationships. That's called good directing. And <laughs> So in terms of the classification of this film as a noir, it is a little bit of a an oddball in some respects. Obviously, number one, because of its setting. It's not set in the city. It's, you know, not gritty. It's not taking place in dark offices or alleyways or warehouses. Um, instead, obviously, we're seeing the desert. We're seeing lakes. We're seeing forests. This is a bit atypical for especially the time period. Uh, the city is really quite defining to so many noirs with many film historians considering cities the kind of boundary for what can be considered noir. Nicholas Christopher, for example, states, um, however one tries to define or explain noir, the common denominator must always be the city. The two are inseparable. Eddie Muller, for his part, states, uh, one way or another, noirs are all about people's struggle to survive in what Lewis Mumford calls the megapolis. And he suggests that the city also provides a framework from which noir plots are built. He writes that noirs are defined by a storyline in which the structure resembles the city itself. The blueprint for noir seems to have been drafted by a demented urban planner. Um, Other historians in trying to quantify these observations note that noir reckons with the contrast between the idyllic rural life and the gritty and harsh realism of the city. Gary Morris postulated that film noir is an expression of the brokered promise of America's transition from farm and field to city, from wilderness to development, from a rural agricultural economy to industrialization. But I feel like this might be quite a narrow lens in which to view noir. The sense of discontent and struggle that lies in the heart of noir storytelling uh, can kind of be present anywhere. And in fact, rural and undeveloped areas can provide a whole new outlook on these feelings and introduce a more literal sense of isolation and desperation into the narrative that even the most downtrodden and ornery of detectives could never understand in the crash of the city streets. Previously, we've talked about the idea of the pastoral noir with Night of the Hunter, and I think there's some comparison to be drawn between the two films uh, in this case, because obviously the isolation of the children in Night of the Hunter, I guess, can be compared to the isolation of their the family unit on the lake um, because you kind of never really see anybody else apart from the main characters. Um, and we're also using the natural landscape as a way to menace uh, the other characters. So obviously in Night of the Hunter we have that great shot of the plains and Robert Mitchum riding up on his horse or, well, the person standing in for Robert Mitchum on the tiny horse. Um, And then in this film we have, you know, the lake and what happens in it and you can't see beneath the surface kind of thing. Um, I think there's some comparisons to be drawn there. 
Um, and there's also kind of a storied history of other noirs that occur outside the traditional setting of a noir, uh, like Gun Crazy or Candace's favourite, They Live by Night. And I think these films can be classified as noir quite fine without um, being restricted to the boundary of the city. I also think that what all of these films have in common is this sense of alienation from society, from one's family, and from safety. And it is in this sense of alienation that clearly marks Leave Her to Heaven as a noir. So the very isolation of the setting plays into the isolation Ellen has within her own family and makes the acts she commits in such picturesque settings that much more uh, unsettling and terrifying. And it also works to heighten our understanding of her mental state of the darkness lurking beneath the placid waters of the lake. Stylistically, uh, the film is also quite different from other noirs. It deals with the subject matter, um, which is obviously a little bit different to the typical detective slock. Uh, Stahl certainly has a very distinct style in his direction. Uh, Stahl is an interesting character in his career. He is quite sympathetic to his female characters and he gives them a lot more depth and complexity than perhaps another director would. But he's also, especially in this movie, using a lot of restraint and subtlety in how he handles the material. I feel like with any other director, there was the opportunity to turn Ellen into like a Fatal Attraction Glenn Close style of character, like having her just go completely unhinged. She boils Danny. Well, yeah. <laughs> she boils Danny. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. But in this movie, she instead is just sort of on the borderline of being like kind of normal. Well, and Jean is really good at those mask off moments, right? Like when she's in the doctor's office and she's just kind of, you can tell she's struggling to keep it up and then it just drops and she's like well after all he's a cripple and the doctor's like shocked that she would say that yeah like it's it's just these you can see the struggle within her to like maintain it um and she's usually successful at it but then sometimes it just falls away i think a big part of it too that the reason it's successful in this movie is because of the ruth character played by gene crane there's a, a good moment where she says something along the lines of like, she's spent her entire life trying to love Ellen and, um, you know, get Ellen to love her, but that Ellen just resents her so deeply and she hates her. And there's just something so miserable about Ellen that no one else can really like penetrate in her life, even though they want to. And even though they try to love her, she just, she's an unlovable person. Jean Crane is like, is a really interesting actress. Um, and I think an underrated actress, I think, Partially because the movies that Gene, Gene Two, really sh uh, was really shining in are not movies that are like often seen today. Like movies like uh, Margie, in particular, a great Margie. That's a great performance, but not a movie that the people really are interested in talking about today. Which is also we should have to do, should do an episode about how like that like um, mid nineteen tens like nostalgia movie was a huge thing in the nineteen forties and was like a major pop culture thing in the moment. It was kind of like how in the seventies that you have this like. Happy Days, Grease Wave. In the early 40s, everyone was making movies about pre-World War One. It was like a, a big thing and like very weird. But um, 
Jean Crane has a, a natural, I think, um, you never, I, I think it's interesting because she's such an, I don't want to use the word virginal because I think it's like kind of condescending. And I also think, I don't think it's right, but she has something that's like such a natural, like nobility about her that you never really, you never get an opportunity to side with Jean Tierney because you never really doubt Jean Crane's motives, you know, like, you 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 realize that it's it's purely a function of Ellen's pathological jealousy, like you said, that she um she thinks that there is this affair kind of like brewing under her nose. You know what I mean? Like when um, when Jean Crane and Cornell Wilde walk off to the city to go buy things for the the baby, and they've been gone for like five hours, and she's like, "What were you talking about? Were you talking about me? You guys were gone an awful long time." You know, and and you really do believe Jean Crane when she's like, uh, "It has nothing to do with you. He's my friend." And we were getting stuff for your baby because Jean Crane strikes you as being such an ultimately trustworthy person. I don't know. It's an interesting role. And I think it's one that could be interpreted very differently if it weren't such kind of a solid performance. But Jean Crane's a very understated actress. And then that makes the scene where um, Ellen is berating Ruth, trying to get her to admit that, you know, she's going on vacation to Mexico because she fantasizes about running off with Richard and blah, 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 blah. What are you running away from? Is it me? Ellen, when we were kids, you used to torment me every way you could think of. You can't do that anymore. Is it Richard? If you must know, I'm going away because I can't stand living in this house any longer. The whole place is filled with hate. Your hate. Not hate. Love, Ruth. Richard's love for me. All these weeks I was in the hospital, helpless. You had him here in the house to yourself. But it didn't do you any good, did it? He still loves me, loves me more than ever. That's what you can't abide. That's why you envy me, isn't it? I don't envy you, Ellen. All my life I've tried to love you, done everything to please you. All of us have, mother, father, and now Richard. And what have you done? With your love, you wrecked mother's life. With your love, you pressed father to death. With your love, you've made a shadow of Richard. No, Ellen, I don't envy you. I'm sorry for you. You're the most pitiful creature I've ever known. It's like, and she just will not budge. And she's like, I'm doing it because I want to get out of this house because you're a fucking bitch. <laughs> I mean, it's such a good, you know, it's that, I don't, I don't know. And I think they're also really believable as um, relatives. There's, it's, it's very credible casting. I don't know. I think, I think they, they play really well off of each other. And I think um, that without that particular performance, it's kind of like, it almost reminded me a little bit of the performance Angela Lansbury gives in Gaslight, where it's like, she's necessary to really kind of provide almost like this broader um, context of like malfeasance to like what Charles Boyer is doing to Ingrid Bergman. That's kind of the vibe you get here, but it's the opposite. That Jean Crane is like the reminder that the world is relatively normal and relatively stable and that there is just one chaos agent in this household trying to undermine the natural order of things. And also, I, I wanted to say, I think it's interesting you pointed out kind of like the ideal rural life and the idea that noir is a, is a reaction to that and the reaction to the kind of like the disappointing realities of urbanization. Because like you said, many of the great noirs take place either partially outside the city or entirely outside of the city. And I, I think it's interesting that the really the most psychologically kind of compelling and disturbing scenes in this movie take place in this like overstuffed colonial like household like classic rich people new england countryside home which is the the barrett family home that they're living in at that point in time you know her parents house 
because it, it's like, you know, surrounded by, you know, there's floral wallpaper and, you know, giant, you know, wing back sofas and shit. And she's kind of like, because she's this, she's like the, the Yankee housewife from hell, you know. And that's an interesting archetype that you don't oftentimes see until kind of later on. I think that's almost like a pre, like, proto, like, Stepford Wives kind of kind of thing. You don't get that kind of tackling of that kind of, like, New England dynamic. I don't know. I just think because Jean Tierney, this noble patrician New Englander, um, carries it off really well. And the fact that, again, she's, like, hurling herself down a staircase to kill her unborn child while surrounded by all those, like, fucking textiles and shit. I don't know. It's just such a cool and interesting visual. And I personally like the movies where Jean is outside of an urban environment because I almost feel like she doesn't strike you as being a person of the city. You know, she strikes me as so much being kind of that like refined country woman that like, again, that like New England nobility that I almost find it hard to believe sometimes in roles where she's supposed to be almost like a more average like city dweller. I don't know. I think it's because she's just so outside yeah. kind of the realm of normal folk. She's sort of untouchable and it sort of makes sense that she'd be surrounded by, you know, the vast beauty of nature. But yeah, it's kinda of like Catherine Hepburn. You know, like Hepburn's Hepburn's her most believable in things like the Philadelphia story because like that's who Catherine Hepburn is. You know what I mean? Like that is the essence of her identity and Jean Tierney kind of strikes me the, the same way. The Time Out film guide kind of compares Stahl's restrained directorial style in Leave Her to Heaven to that of Yasujiro Ozu, stating a film noir in colour per Martin Scorsese and a masterpiece of post-World War II American cinema, the on-screen mellow boils, but director John M. Stahl's gaze remains spare and precise, very Japanese in its effects, like an acidic fusion of Ozu and Naruse, which I think is a pretty apt comparison if we're talking about the use of space and sort of quiet tension in some scenes. It's kind of got the vibe of Ozu's use of ma, which is that, you know, emptiness of nothing happening to help give, you know, a moment to breathe, but also to give greater context to what exactly is happening and let it sink in with the viewer. So I think that pacing, especially in scenes like when Ellen is watching Danny drown, that is quite a long scene and it builds quite slowly. And there's a lot of moments where not much is happening on screen, like it's just on Gene Tierney sitting and watching. And I think that helps sort of give a level of nuance to the film that would otherwise be missing if it was in the hands of another director. I think it's a much more accurate comparison stylistically than I think what this movie is most often compared to, which is the work of Douglas Sirk. Because I feel like even though Cirque's work oftentimes, Cirque's work, say that six times fast, is um, oftentimes about people who feel isolated and particularly women who are, who are, who are isolated. Um, whereas, and I guess the movie, I guess it's more about like the woman doing the isolating. But you never, I, I don't know, at least in, in my interpretation of Cirque, you very rarely get that sense of, like you said, kind of almost like an empty plane. Cirque's movies to me always feel a little almost like um, there's there's so much of like a tapestry kind of situation going on, like a really like heavy, like almost like a like a brocade visually. You know what I mean? Like there's so many layers, there's so many things going on. It's like, a, you know, 
that. They, yeah, they feel they're heavy. always thinking about something. Yeah, exactly. Like they, and they, movies. they feel heavy. You know, the lighting feels heavy because he's, you know, there's all this so much shadow play and kind of this, all this like almost like religious imagery that Cirque uses that everything feels kind of, kind of heavy. They feel dense, I guess. Cirque movies feel dense and they kind of feel like all consuming. Whereas, yeah, I think this definitely has more of an Ozu like, um, like, like a transparency to it, you know? Yeah. Um, which is like, such an interesting um, thing for such a it's visually so sumptuous again like a lot of the ozu movies are it's 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 sumptuous but it's not it's not heavy it's like a it's like a really nice tea cake <laughs> and then a cirque movie is like some of those like heavy british like desserts it's that's like, like a covered in nuts fruit cake yes a cirque movies are like fruit cakes one Be- beautiful fruit cakes wonderful fruit cakes but they're fruit cakes yeah yeah they're very dense speaking of the color um lots of people have said that it seems as though the color was specifically made to capture Jean Tierney's beauty with Anthony Lane of the New Yorker commenting, Technicolor has reached an astounding apogee in the lips of Jean Tierney, as red as a witch's apple. Each frame of her seems to be hand-tinted as if she had ordered it. Her soft voice dies to a low whisper at the close of every phrase. I don't want anybody else to do anything for you, she tells her husband. And with that, the great conservative promise of post-war domesticity, the man, newly arrived or returned, waited upon by his woman, tightens into a threat. And I do feel like uh, the Technicolor used in the film helps to really cement this sense of cognitive dissonance that the film plays in, this play between the perfect, bright, rich landscape of the pristine home uh, and the beautifully... Uh, made up faces contrasting with the sort of boiling growing rage that Ellen is feeling towards uh, anything that threatens her security you know her play at being you know the domestic goddess that does everything so that Richard doesn't need anything is directly sort of transposed into the use of color so everything is really bright and beautiful there's a lot of color in almost every scene there's a lot of color and then that directly contrasts with some of the action that takes place in those scenes, um, which is, I think, again, as we touched on earlier, something that I think gets lost in a lot of modern cinema because people just simply aren't thinking about film in that way. Can I just say really quickly before I forget, Tiff pointed out, completely unrelated, but kind of tying into her whole like electric complex thing with her father, part of the situation with her pregnancy when she's absolutely just furious that um her father's laboratory has been turned into a nursery for the for the baby and previous to that when jean crane is posing for the mural on the wall of like the clown remember she's got like the the paper mache kind of like dunce yeah. cap on and then to point it out that yeah. the clown that cornell paints looks awful like <laughs> gacy like john wayne gacy <laughs> and <laughs> i feel like we had to talk about that because otherwise i was gonna forget so who wouldn't want a gacy clown mural you know, in the room that would soon have their, their, their now dead child in it. It's poetic in a way. I mean, it's interesting that you uh, bring up the Electra complex because, you know, at this point now I want to talk about sort of the breakdown of Ellen as a character because she is kind of billed as that femme fatale, but as we pointed out earlier, I mean, it's kind of in an environment you don't really expect to see a femme fatale like in that domestic, secure, married woman she certainly looks the part of the femme fatale she has a chic styling and her beautiful costumes um which again monogrammed fucking clothes 
There's that like, are they like pajama silk pajama set that she has, like with the inset yes. initials over her chest? Um, just like in Whirlpool, how she had all her like monogrammed clothes. Do they just monogram everything back then, or is it just like specifically Jean Tierney? They were like, we have to monogram all of her clothes. <laughs> they did love fucking monograms. That was that was their thing. When she's in the bathroom there. Uh- framing ruth for poisoning her ruth just has those hand towels that just say like ruth in huge letters across both those are so cool honestly though maybe we should bring it back though because it might be a good idea for like in these covid times just if i have my own towel if i have my own like everything is monogrammed with my name Maybe that is the vibe. Monogramming is very much like a waspy New England thing. Like today, like if you order stuff from like L.L. Bean or other like iconic New England companies, also from Maine where this movie is set, you can get everything fucking monogrammed. They love monogramming. I think it's also because their middle names like mean things to them. Because it's like the name of their great, 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 great grandfather who fucked someone on the Mayflower or whatever, you know, it's like because they're so obsessed with lineage. I don't know. But monogramming should definitely come back. And I think also, I, I think like almost like having your name on stuff is very funny to me because it, it's almost like, I think the modern equivalent is how people will be like driving around their car and they'll have like decals and bumper stickers that are so thoroughly. Oh, with their family. Yeah. That I'm like, I could steal your identity. I know everything about you. I know where you went to school. I know where <laughs> your kids go to school. I know, their, I know their ages and their names. You know, I know it's like, that's the equivalent now, I guess. I, I People, I guess, love that, that uh, self-identification. But now they're not doing it with cool towels. We should bring back cool towels. But yeah, obviously there's quite a few allusions to Greek mythology throughout the film. So obviously she's the character Ellen is defined by her electro complex with her obsession over her deceased father. But to further this illusion, many props and actions seem to support her um, as this sort of tragic Greek figure um, with obviously – her father's ashes housed in seemingly a Greek urn, um, and then her riding it, uh, riding a horse with the urn on her hip, like the goddess Hippolyta. Ellen has also been likened to a siren by film scholars, with Sarah Smith noting that Ellen is tied to water and swimming, uh, like a mermaid, cold blooded, an alien preying upon a hapless human male. Like the contrast between her and Ruth, where Ruth is hanging above Cornell while trimming the roses back while he's trying to write his novel, whereas Ellen approaches in the water. That's a really interesting take also because Jean Crane, you know, Ruth is, you know, the gal with the hoe is what he calls her when he inscribes the book to her. And that you know, she's seen at one point um, when they have their confrontation, the two of them, I believe she's uh, arranging flowers in a vase. And then obviously one of Jean Tierney's most important scenes in this movie occurs in the middle of a lake. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I do find it very interesting that in the scene where Cornell Wilde first calls her the girl, girl with the hoe, Jean Crane has like dirt smudged all over her face, but none on her hands when she's like working with all of this dirt, like hoeing all of these tracks of land, uh, which I thought was... She was digging with her face, funny. like just shoving her nose in there. Yeah. <laughs> just her teeth. <laughs> She was just biting into the dirt and putting some flowers in there. I used to do it in the good old days. Uh, Ellen has also been likened to Medea, uh, the fierce and cunning Greek mythological figure who, uh, by some accounts, murders her own children. Um, on the other hand, we can also draw some comparisons to Shakespearean tragedy. 
the title of the novel and the film comes from Hamlet, uh, when the ghost of Hamlet's father appears to him, demanding his son avenge his death without acting out against his mother. He says, leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. And I think, I, I don't think it would be too far out of school for us to make some comparisons between Ellen and some of the more well-known figures of Shakespearean tragedy. I myself can see some shades of Lady Macbeth in her uh, with Ellen quite driven by her ambition and by, you know, her end goal in trying to secure what she wants. She's quite forceful and has a lot of control, um, but then is ultimately driven mad by her own determination Mm -hmm. and her own paranoia. On the other hand, the film has had a lot of analysis on the root of Ellen's mental illness. Um, some label it as pathological possessiveness, others just say that it's part of her electrocomplex, and others still compare her struggles to that of a woman unable to conform uh, to the expectations of society and the family brought to breaking point. Now, unlike Candace, I'm not a doctor for TV. I'm certainly not a psychiatrist, so I won't begin to try and diagnose her with, you know, what exactly I think her specific mental illness is, but I do think it's rather simplistic of uh, particularly men to simply categorize her as possessive or crazy when it's perhaps clear that her behaviors are a little bit more complex and the motivations behind them are something that we're never exactly privy to. Uh, And once again, I mean, the film is all told from the perspective of an outsider. So we really never get this insight into exactly what's happened before Richard meets Ellen for her to be so isolated within her family. And, you know, whether there have been events in her life that have led her to feel like the only way for her to be secure is for her to be in complete control of situations. For her part, Tierney would describe the character of Ellen thusly. Um, As much as any part I played, Ellen had meaning for me as a woman. She was jealous in a sad and destructive way. Jealousy is, I think, the worst of all faults because it makes a victim of both parties. Although treated subtly in the book and the movie, Ellen was without a doubt insane. She believed herself to be normal and worked at convincing her friends she was. Most emotionally disturbed people go through such a stage, the equivalent of an alcoholic hiding the bottle. Which I think is quite a a nuanced interpretation of it, which I think explains why Jean Tierney is so wonderful in her portrayal of Ellen. For my part, I think obviously one, yeah, Ellen is certainly, she's got some kind of psychological problem at play. Um, But I also think that there can be some interpretations of her character which, you know, ask a few more questions about the broader role of uh, women who don't quite fit in society at that period of time and what exactly happens to them and how they could be misunderstood in that context. So I think it can be argued that some of Ellen's characteristics in the movie are uh, very masculine coded um, in that she, you know, rides, she hunts, she swims, she takes charge, she's not afraid to get what she wants And it isn't sort of until she's confined to the role of a homemaker 
you know, which is one that she wants to excel at, that her troubles kind of really manifest. She, while she sort of dives headfirst into that, you know, domestic role, she approaches it in that quite strange way, non-traditional way in that she's like, I don't want anyone else to provide for you but me. But in this role, she finds herself trapped and again on the outside, just as she was with her mother and her sister, um, because Richard insists on keeping this rotating group of friends and relatives around. And she never really gets this opportunity to have time alone with Richard. Like even in that scene where they're in this sort of Lucy and Desi beds um, in the lodge, she sidles up to Cornell Wilde and she gets on his bed, which is quite scandalous, and starts trying to proposition him. And then Danny bangs on the window is like, hey, guys, I just like to watch you guys. Um, <laughs> and, like, interrupts. And then, you know, Richard's off and they're out swimming. And then, like, when he, he invites her family over, who throughout the film her mother and even Ruth at some points have been openly hostile. Like, her mother especially, like, makes it clear that she and Ellen don't get on. She doesn't like Ellen Ellen is definitely more a creature of her father's than of hers. And Ellen obviously does not take kindly to this invasion. So I think there's maybe something to be said that Ellen has some kind of expectation for what their marriage uh, should look like that Richard really has no understanding of. He makes a lot of assumptions about what Ellen likes and dislikes and, you know, what exactly her relationship is with her family, but doesn't actually talk to her at any point to get some kind of understanding. And then like, this might also be because of Ellen's mask uh, in trying to seem like she's a normal person um, with, you know, how she deals with Danny and how she talks to, oh God, what, what's the, um, the housekeeper's name? Thorn. Yeah. Thorn. Like she has this face that she shows but like I feel like this disconnect between her and Richard and what their expectations of marriage are kind of exacerbate things a whole lot more than just Ellen on her own just being crazy you know I think I think she definitely I mean I think it's fair to say that she has some of the hallmarks of like maybe a personality disorder (laughs) um in the sense that she just doesn't relate with average human empathy and understanding but I think it's she's interesting because she falls through an archetype that we see in noir with women but we don't really see in pop culture more broadly with women which is a traditionally male archetype the winner who stops winning that's kind of an established male narrative that you see in a lot of the great a lot of the most celebrated movies I mean that's Citizen Kane that's Vito Corleone in The Godfather. Um, you see that in to a kind of a lesser level in all sorts of movies from The Champ to Picnic to Requiem for, Heavyweight, uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight with Anthony Quinn. I mean, all these celebrated dramas that are kind of about a man who reaches a limit of his powers and kind of goes into decline. And you see it in noir oftentimes in the sense of a ruthless woman who kind of comes up against the wall of what she can manipulate other people into doing. Um, Obviously, Rita Hayworth and Gilda, that's kind of a similar part. And more sympathetically, I would argue Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce, and then also Anne Blythe in Mildred Pierce, is kind of 
a, a commentary on that. And so we see that particular character in these movies, but you don't see it otherwise because I think the masculine element of that, I think, is too threatening otherwise. I mean, that's the comment at the end, isn't it? Like, it's like, I guess uh, when Glenn Broby says, I guess it's the only time she didn't come out first. Like, mm-hmm. oh, great point. Yeah. I think she, um, maybe in many ways, she did win though, because she did end up in the place she most wanted to be, which is with her father. Yeah, excellent point. Have we talked about the fact that when they show an image of her, the, the picture of her father, it's literally Cornell Wilde in old age makeup? Have we elaborated upon that? Because it's incredibly <laughs> fucked up. He looked like Scrooge McDuck. But, like, if Scrooge McDuck was a man? <laughs> do you know what it reminds me of? Do, do you remember the scene in Duel in the Sun where they're showing a scrapbook? I think it's a scrapbook, I want to say. Or maybe, like, a family photo. I don't remember. Of Gregory Peck and Joseph Cotton as children. And literally what they've done is taken Joseph, an image, actual images of Joseph Cotton and Gregory Peck as children, just cut out the heads and, like, stuck them onto other children's bodies. That's the vibe I got here. That is one of the craziest. I think I have a screenshot of it somewhere. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And it's like, who authorizes? This looks terrible. But that's that's what this is. So in terms of the reception of the film, it was released on the 20th of December in, I've written 1845 here. Obviously I wrote this late at night. Uh, at 1945 uh, at the Carthay Circle Theatre in Los Angeles. Um, before premiering in New York City on Christmas Day. Quite the Christmas treat. Um, fans keen to see Tierney again after the success of Laura, ultimately netting $5.5 million in US ticket sales. Producer David O. Selznick and Jennifer Jones would call Tierney to say how impressed they were with her performance, yet Tierney stated um, the most sincere compliment she got was when she visited, visited her friends in Cape Cod and they asked her if she could speak to their cook. She has seen your new film, the wife said, and when she heard you were coming, she threatened to leave. For her part, Tierney did go down and speak to her and recalled the cook smiled and said, Oh, ma'am, you sure were mean in that picture. Now that I've seen you, you're real nice. So contemporary critics, on the other hand, were less generous. Everybody's most hated cunt, Bosley Crowther, wrote... Miss Tierney's petulant performance of this vixenish character is about as analytical as a piece of pin-up poster art. It is strictly one-dimensional in the manner of a dot on an eye. And Colonel Wilde is equally restricted as her curiously overpowered spouse. Jean Crane is colourless and wooden as the sister with whom he eventually finds bliss. And Vincent Price, Mary Phillips and Daryl Hickman mechanically play other roles. Only the sets are intriguing, being elaborate and gadgety. Crowther hates beautiful women, you know. He hates women. He hates women in general, That's but I think he problem. has this particular weird, I always say this, but he hated Joan Crawford. He loathed Joan Crawford. And I think there's just an element of like, I think a lot of men are just very afraid of a woman they know would run them over with a truck if, you know, given yeah. the opportunity. I, I get the feeling that a lot of the critics particularly in this film, were just afraid of the concept of this overpowering female presence. James Agee was also critical of the performances, writing no amount of strenuous plot trouble or even a long fall down a flight of steps seems to jar Jean Tierney's smooth deadpan. Walking or sleeping in ecstasy or anger, joy or sorrow, her pretty composed features seem to be asking a single gaiman and spinach question, huh? And it's just like, shut up. 
<laughs> I normally like AG, but he did deserve to die for that one, so he's wrong about that. Um, for me, a lot of the criticisms betray, I guess, a level of male misinterpretation. A lot of the critique seems to stem from Tierney's apparent indifference or lack of emotion when I think it would make less sense if Ellen did display that healthy level of emotion because she doesn't have any empathy. So why would she display it? And the steely countenance that she has in the film is kind of a character in and of itself. It, it's a reflection of her resolve. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of women can sympathize with, a cold, steely acceptance of doing what you can to carve out a space for yourself in what could be a hostile environment for you, regardless of whether your motives are ethical or not. I don't think this necessarily means that we're, we're sympathetic with some of her more extreme behavior, but I think we are perhaps more cognizant of what it means, of what might have led her to that. Uh, extreme end. I also think that Tierney's portrayal of Ellen as something uh, of an untouchable statue speaks to the um, dichotomy of her character, the contrast between the appearance and expectations of what um, her actual lived experience is and who she is as a person. Like her face remains impassive because it's a mask that she's wearing. And, you know, she's beautiful, but she's also fucking crazy. So, I feel like most male critics just aren't capable of, at, like particularly at this time, of kind of understanding that nuance in the character because they're just fucking morons. Um, and, I mean, I, you know, once again, everyone is wrong except us. I think there's an element of almost conflating kind of the Ice Princess routine in this movie with the Ice Princess routine and, like, something like a Grace Kelly performance. But... I think the difference there is that, like you said, in this, it's, an, it's a mask, whereas Grace Kelly yeah, just, I, like, couldn't act, you know? And so I think there's, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I think so, it, the problem with being an understated actor and someone who actually, like, knows how to modulate a performance is that if it looks easy, which I think Jean's acting always does, it looks easy because she was good at it. I think there's it, it, totally underestimating the skill involved there. Yeah, and I also think there's some level of, oh, there's a pretty girl, let's hate on her. Oh, yeah. Uh, with these male critics, because, you know, she she is incredibly beautiful, but she's also incredibly skilled at her craft, she's, which, I mean, they can't reconcile. She's what Carrie Hilson was talking about in the song Pretty Girl Rock. She was talking about Jean Tierney <laughs> and Leave Her to Heaven. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, it's only sort of in the more recent times that we've seen this reappraisal of this movie, which uh, reassesses Jean Tierney and everyone else's performance in the movie and with a lot more uh, understanding and sympathy. And, I mean, I don't really like him, but Martin Scorsese is right when he says it's his favourite movie because it, it is an incredible movie and it's kind of uh, one of a kind in so many different ways. In terms of the Academy, they were certainly impressed with her performance and she was nominated for her first and only Academy Award. But she did not win this because this was, of course, the year that Joan Crawford won from her sickbed for Mildred Pierce, which is, I mean, that's a hard, that's a tough, it's a tough year to be nominated for Best Actress. Um, but it is a shame that she was never really given an opportunity like this 
to win an Academy Award because she certainly deserved one. And kind of like after this, I don't really think that she got another role that allowed her to flex as much as she does here. Where does this kind of leave us in terms of where Leave Her to Heaven is is positioned in film history? I think for me, Leave Her to Heaven is a prime example of an atypical noir that is subversive and interesting and perhaps slightly more higher functioning than some other examples of more typical noir. There's a way of reading it that you can see a little bit of the struggle that women who didn't necessarily fit within, you know, society's norms might have had in those times. But I can also see, you know, interpretations of not that very sort of rudimentary 1945 understanding of mental illness and how it should be handled because at no point during the film is like, because everyone is aware that there's something wrong with Ellen, but she's never like treated with any kind of sympathy. Like even before she commits any kind of crime, like it's clear that her mother is aware that there's something not quite right, but she, it's never like, she's never reached out to her to try and get to the heart of that. She's just sort of isolated her which I think is very interesting in how people with mental illness would have been more likely to have been socially alienated than perhaps they are now because they were just not understood. And kind of an interesting foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Jean's own life, you know? Yeah, I mean, I read her autobiography for this and it was like, this is the saddest book I've ever fucking read. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's... It's not good news, and it's it's so frustrating because it's like it shouldn't have been that way for her. <laughs> that like talk about a woman who should have received a whole lot more kindness than she did. And then I also think that this film is good because it makes men uncomfortable, and any film that does that is a winner in my book. Um, it's a great movie. I watched Jean Tierney read the phone book. I like the house in New Mexico. Where they have, like, at one point there's, like, you see it when Jean Crane is playing the piano, there's literally, like, an alcove just full of cacti. Very stylish. <laughs> um, I like the fact that she's wearing a pair of tasteful mules when she flings herself down a staircase. It's just, it's a visually stunning movie and an intellectually stimulating movie. And I think you're right when you say that. It's a shame that Jean never really had an opportunity to have a role like this ever again. When she's just an absolute shining star in our dismal universe. Yeah, I think it's it's a chilling movie. I think Jean is absolutely chilling in it. In terms of like how you define a noir, I think it's such a broad question and such a slippery thing to kind of, you know, wrap your mind around. But the through line for me usually tends to be not so much the city as the sense of post-war kind of cynicism and disillusionment. And this absolutely has that. Like, that's all there. And in that sense, it's absolutely a noir to me. So yeah, and it's it's gorgeous and it's freaky and Jean is just spectacular in it. That's kind of where I fall. It's valid. It's extremely valid. You know, like she's great. I think that the month of November should be officially dedicated to her memory um, and everyone forced kind of like a clockwork orange style to consume Jean Tierney content <laughs> in the month of November. It's just such a good fucking movie. It just makes me so mad that movies aren't like this anymore. <laughs> but, you know, what are you going to do? You can't go over and kill fucking Christopher Nolan, so... Not with that attitude. 
<laughs> For legal reasons, I would like to specify that that is a joke. <laughs> Christopher Nolan, if you're listening to this, which I know you are, <laughs> Christopher Nolan hate listening to our podcast as we talk about how all his movies are fucking blue. Yeah, it's just kind of disappointing that with all of the advantages that modern technology offers, it's only served to kind of create this kind of gray uniformity to movies these days that you can't really tell one from another because they're not visually striking enough from one another. Like you could tell me like a still from June is a still from some fucking Marvel movie. I wouldn't know. They're, they're supplanting, I think a lot of elements of the craft, not like supplementing it, you know, Mm. and post-production is not a substitute for a solid foundation. Yeah, I would just like to say, like, no hate to people who work in post-production. It's incredibly hard, and there's a lot of exploitation that goes on in that kind of creative environment. But it's just, I mean... I just wish you were ahead. I wish they had better material to work with a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Exactly. Because it's like, you know, it's hard to be the guy who has to polish the turd. Exactly. You know, like... I know, I've done it. I have literally tried to polish... It it doesn't work. (laughs) You can't follow sure. <laughs> it just I mean, honestly, Tiff does that every time she edits this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, on that note. If you've got some spare time, watch this movie. It's two hours long, pretty much. And, I mean, Martin Scorsese is right. It's a great movie. A broken clock is right twice a day. So <laughs> enjoy November, everybody. Don't shoot anyone on a film set. I can't believe we didn't talk about that. Oh, next episode. Uh, Or getting bitten by a spider. What is going on? Anyway, (laughs) just respect your union representatives and don't try and undercut them is really the moral of this story. And yeah, thank you for listening. As always, you can um, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Uh, Let us know what you think. It's always great to hear from you. If you have any requests, you can send them to our socials on Instagram and Twitter at BasketPod. Uh, We do put up the show notes. You can find them in the description of this episode. I did read a lot of academic journals for this, if that's your thing. So they'll be listed. And yeah, stay safe. Don't shoot anyone on a film set. (laughs) And if you do, make it Alec Baldwin, not someone else. Okay, all right. (laughs) Bye-bye. No. (laughs) Shut up. I'm going to close the door. Yeah, go away. I will just say up front, the name is Ben Ames Williams, yeah? Who wrote the book? Yeah. Cool. I was like, Amez Williams? No. (laughs) Um, It doesn't matter. Whatever I imagine in my head it sounds like, I always say it wrong because I don't know what happens between my mouth and my brain when I'm reading. But sometimes I just say words that I know how to say perfectly fine, and then I listen back to the podcast, and it's like, why do you sound like that? <laughs> but anyway, well, that's is it a discussion Ames? for me and my shrink. Is it Ben Ames Williams, <laughs> or is it Ben Ames Will I Am? Maybe. Bring in the boom boom pa- I'm sorry, you can cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> boom boom drown in your child. 
Look, I've got a bone to pick with you over this. Just because you can't burp doesn't mean you can judge how much other people burp, okay? One of these days I'm going to go to Chicago and get that surgery from that man who puts the balloon in your throat. And then it'll be over for you, Hose. No, you don't need to go in there. No. Is that, is that Penny snoring? I'm sorry, I just have to, is that Penny? She keeps like... coming into my room and trying to get into the closet and she's making noises at me because I won't let her in the closet. Why can't she go in the closet? It's not a real closet. It's like the storage room under the stairs and it's like concrete and she doesn't need to oh, be okay, in there. Right. I was like, what are you hiding in there? <laughs> Harry Potter cosplay. Come on. <laughs> Have you stabbed 29 Japanese seamen and you're hiding possibly, them in your closet? And... Okay, make up your mind. Are you going to stay or not? <laughs> now she wants to leave. She's going to scratch on my door the minute I let her out. Okay, go. I was trying to be discreet because I thought that you were like saying like muttering on your breath and I was like, Tiff, it's okay. Yeah, I thought, I th- at first I thought it was muttering too. I was like, is Tiff not engaged? Is she like... No, it's it's been Penny for like half an hour. At first she got stuck under my bed and I was trying to handle that quietly and <laughs> <laughs> it's been a whole thing. <laughs> Oh my god. You should just tell us that that's <laughs> happening. It makes a great ending for the podcast. Come on. 